Well, good morning. I hope each of you had a, a wonderful Christmas <clears throat> together with your family. Um, Pastor Wade is out today, as you probably know by now, and so I have the privilege of uh, sharing with you from the Word of God, and uh, you have the, uh, whatever you determine it to be, uh, of uh, listening to me this morning. Uh, but uh, we want to uh, look at a passage of Scripture that's found in Ezekiel chapter 18 today. Uh, as we think about the context of this, Ezekiel was a prophet um, who had uh, proclaimed uh, the judgment that was coming, uh, but also was a prophet that uh, proclaimed hope for the nation and for individuals. Now, Ezekiel was one of the first, he, well, he was taken captive uh, in one of the first uh, times that uh, exiles went into Babylon. And so he was prophesying from Babylon, from uh, there, and there was also uh, yet to come additional exile times uh, where Jerusalem would ultimately be destroyed and, and many more would go into exile in around 586 B.C., but uh, Ezekiel had gone earlier. And so that's kind of the context of uh, where we're reading this. And so we're talking... <clears throat> so if you would uh, and are able, stand with me for the reading of, of God's Word. Um, Ezekiel chapter 18. The Word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. You will no longer use this proverb in Israel. Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the father is like the life of the son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. Now suppose a man is righteous and does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or raise his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or come near a woman during her menstrual impurity. He doesn't... I have one. He doesn't oppress anyone but returns his collateral to the debtor. He does not commit robbery... Uh, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing. He doesn't lend at interest or for profit, but keeps his hand from wrongdoing and carries out true justice between men. He follows my statutes and keeps my ordinances, acting faithfully. Such a person is righteous. He will certainly live. This is the declaration of the Lord God. Now suppose a man has a violent son who sheds blood and does any of these things. Though the father has done none of them, indeed, when the son eats at the mountain shrines and defiles his neighbor's wife, and when he oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, and does not return collateral, and he raises his eyes to the idols, commits detestable acts, and lends at interest of a profit, he, will he live? He will not live. Since he has committed all these detestable acts, he will certainly die. His blood will be on him. You may be seated. We'll uh, look at that whole chapter, but that's all I wanted to read. Uh, as we look at <clears throat> a righteous man who will live and an uh, unrighteous son uh, who will die. 
And so uh, what we're dealing with here is uh, a nation who is using a proverb and interpreting it wrongly. The proverb, um, they basically wanted to blame the sins of their fathers for the situation and circumstances that they found themselves in. And we need to understand that, yes, the, our parents and our ancestors uh, and the things and choices that they make, they influence us, but we are not held accountable for their sins. They are not held accountable for our sins. This passage is teaching us about our personal responsibility to steward our life. We need to be personally growing and pursuing God. And so what we find is that they were using this parable, this proverb, uh, that indicated, and it came from uh, past teachings that dealt with some corporate responsibility. Uh, when God was given the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, he said, I will punish the, uh, the children uh, from, to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the father. Uh, but this was being misinterpreted from, it was not talking about me being responsible or being punished for my father's sin or my children being punished for my sin. Uh, it's talking about, yes, there are the choices that we make do influence, that do impact them, uh, but they are not held responsible for them. Now, there will sometimes be corporate consequences because of choices that have been made. But ultimately, he wants to correct it to where they understand that you are held accountable for your choices, the way that you steward your life. I am held accountable personally for the way that I choose to steward my life. But they had grown uh, very much fatalistic in their uh, understanding of life and this is very dangerous because first, it's an affront to God. As a holy, righteous, and a just God, he will always be just in his pronouncements of his judgment. And then secondly, it's very dangerous because you and I need to understand that we have the capacity and the ability to break the cycle of sin that has, and rebellion that may have come through our family lineage, our ancestral lineage. And so when we approach it from a fatalistic point of view, we have much less opportunity for success. I kind of like to think of it oftentimes when we're talking about, uh, you know, overcoming sin. You know, the, I say, I'll ask someone, I say, do you, do, do you have to sin? Well, I say, sure, I'm human. I said, well, what do you do with the passage of Scripture that says that there is no temptation that's not common to man, but with every temptation, there's provided a way of escape. Now, if the Bible tells me that with every temptation that comes my way, there is provided a way of escape, then what that tells me is that I don't have to sin. I sin because I choose to. Because I am not walking in the Spirit filled with the Spirit to such a level that I'm able to overcome every temptation. But God has done his part. He's provided a way of escape. 
And so what's important about that is, yeah, I'm probably going to fail. I'm probably going to sin again. I'll lose it somewhere along the line. But it's because I choose not to do everything necessary to be filled with the Spirit and walk in such a way that I'm in tune with God's perfect will for my life. It's not because of God's unfairness or his unjust or just simply because I'm a human. It's because of the choices that I make on a daily basis. And so what I want people to understand at that point is, is if you're going to successfully overcome temptation, you don't need to approach it from a fatalistic point of view. Well, I'm going to sin. I'm just human. You need to approach it from a biblical point of view because of the reality that you're a child of God and you have the Holy Spirit living in you and that with every temptation that's provided a way of escape, you do not have to sin. And so you have a much better or greater opportunity to resist that temptation when you approach it from a biblical theological point of view. And so that's the same here when it comes to our personal responsibility. You know, just because we have, live in a difficult situation, because we uh, uh, lived in a, a family of origin that created certain problems for us, or because of the system that's around us, it does not mean that we cannot overcome it. It does not mean that we are doomed to a, a life of judgment and lack of blessing. So, if you go to your outline, the first, the, the first one is there, the practice of transferring responsibility and blame to someone else is a characteristic of sinful human nature. You see, that's what this proverb is, is really doing. In verse 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, if I eat, how many of you ever had green persimmon? <laughs> now, if you want something that'll set your teeth on edge, get you a green persimmon. But when I eat a green persimmon, you know, it's not going to set your teeth on edge. What this proverb had to deal with was, yes, there will be some influence, but the, the Israelites were using this as an excuse to justify their circumstances and put the blame on somebody else. I'm that way. I'd a whole lot rather blame you for my problems than to own them. You're probably that way a lot too. If you want to know the truth of the matter. But each and every one of us have a tendency because of our sin nature to want to blame others for the problems that we have. It goes all the way back to the garden. You know, Adam and Eve uh, partook, partook of the fruit of the tree in the center of the garden, and uh, they realized that they were naked, and they made some fig leaves for themselves, and they hid when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And God says, Adam, where are you? 
Well, I hid because I was naked and ashamed. Who told you you were naked? Uh, so he had sinned and said, what happened here? Well, what did Adam do? He said, well, this woman that you gave me, aren't we bad about that even today? Well, this woman that you gave me, Lord, you know, I'd be a great husband if my wife would just do right. I'm just telling you. And she'd be a great wife if I would just do right. You know, we like to blame others for our circumstances, for the choices that we make. But our, the scripture today we're going to look at is telling us that we are personally responsible for our spiritual growth and development and for the choices that we make, and we will be judged on the basis of our lives. You know, when Adam got through saying, this woman you gave me, he turned to Eve and she said, well, Satan deceived me. Uh, I've talked to a, a lot of people that there, there are definitely some difficult things. You take some people that come out of uh, some of the, the treatment situations uh, and it's very difficult to find a job. Sometimes it's, it's difficult in a lot of ways to get your feet back on the ground. And we want to blame the system. But the reality of it is, is that it was our choices, the decisions that we made that put us there in the first place. You know, we have marriages that are falling apart. And, you know, we want to blame each other. We want to blame circumstances, all kinds of things. But the reality of it is, it's our decisions that have put us in the situation and circumstances that we find ourselves today. Children often want to blame their parents for the problems and the struggles. They're too strict on me or they don't do this or they don't do that. But God says that each and every one of us are personally responsible. You know, I firmly believe that as disciple makers, as people that, that have that are following Jesus, we need to be making disciples. And when we see people that are young in their faith, we need to be investing in them and finding ways to get them connected. But I want to say, even though I believe that, the other side of that is I believe that if you are a young believer, that you can't blame the church because they didn't disciple you, even if we failed to do it. You can't blame others who did not invest in you. Yes, they may have failed, but ultimately it is you that must accept the responsibility for your own spiritual development and the way in which you steward your life. You can find somebody that will help you if the ones around you fail you. You can find a church that will help you if the church you're in is failing you. But we've got to reach out and make that responsibility. And so, if we move to verses 3 and 4, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God, you will no longer use this proverb in Israel. 
Look, every life belongs to me. The life of the Father is like the life of the Son. Both belong to me. The person who sins is the one who will die. So in, in your outline, number two is individuals are not guilty for sins committed by others or by their families. And certainly they, they impact us, decisions of other people. Sins of other people often impact us and influence us. But God says every person will be held personally responsible for their own sins. And, you know, Ezekiel is not the only place where God reiterates this because it was very common to think that, okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to punish for generation upon generation. Uh, but in Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, fathers are not to be put to death for their children or children for their fathers. Each person we put to death will be put to death for his own sin. Then in 2 Kings 14, 6, however, he did not put the children of the murderers to death as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded Fathers must not be put to death because of children, and children must not be put to death because of fathers. Instead, each one will be put to death for his own sin. So, yeah, sometimes it's hard to, to take two different passages and, and really understand what they mean. But, but when, you, when you look at the punishing of, you know, children to the second and third generation, when you put it in context of these other teachings, you understand that you're talking about an, an influence and an impact and, and possibly corporate consequences. But what's really happening there is that the second and the third generations are not repenting and coming to righteous living, but they're continuing in the sins of their fathers. When he began, when Ezekiel corrected <clears throat> this proverb and said, you're not to use this anymore, but every person is to be responsible for his own sin. And then he, he, he kind of started a theological proof, if you will. He talked about a, a righteous man and a righteous man who had an unrighteous son, and then that unrighteous son who had a righteous son. In other words, he went through all of this process <coughs> to make sure that we understood that even if there's a righteous man, he's going to live. But if he has an unrighteous son, the righteousness of this father is not credited to the son. And then the unrighteous son who has a son, a grandson to the righteous man, looks at all that his father has done and he chooses to follow the way of his grandfather. He will live. The sins of his father would not be held against him. And so he makes this proof. These, he uses these three generations to show us. And as we think about that, we recognize that individuals will be saved on their own merit 
and not on the merit of their parents or anybody else because that's by what we'll be judged. A righteous man, when he does what is right, he will live. But what, we, what I really want us to understand is that we are able to break the cycle of sin in our family and live. You see, it was broken in this example that was given. The righteous man is going to live. It talked about all of the good things or all of the other things that he did not do. I don't think this was just a complete list of, his, of the things that were sinful, but it was characteristic of a man who was following the righteousness that was described in the law of Moses at that time. And so we can break the cycle of sin. Number three is that in verses 21 and 22, now the wicked person turns from all the sins he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right. He will certainly live. He will not die. None of the transgressions he has committed would be held against him. So we're able to break that cycle. We're able to recognize that we're not bound by former sins by our own or others when we come to God in faith and repentance. God doesn't care about our past. He cares about what we're going to do today to honor him, what we're going to do to follow him the rest of our life. And so the righteous father had a son who chose unrighteousness, and then he had a son who chose righteousness. And then he goes on and clarifies very well here that we are able to break the cycle of sin in our families and that we are, as individuals, not bound by our former sins. We do not have to be defined by a previous life. When we come to God in faith and repentance and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord of our life, change takes place. We can alter judgment for our lifestyle of sin through faith and repentance. And uh, <clears throat> verses beginning with verse 25 after he he shares all of this about how we can deal with this deal with sin in our life but you say the lord's way isn't fair now listen house of israel is it my way that is unfair instead isn't it your ways that are unfair when a righteous person turns from his righteousness and practices iniquity, he will die for this. He will die because of the iniquity he has practiced. But if a wicked person turns from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he will preserve his life. He will certainly live because he thought it over and turned from all the transgressions he has committed. So, one can alter judgment for a lifestyle of sin through repentance and faith. And then when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, does those same sins and abominations that the wicked person does, 
for him, he will die. So when the people of Israel are looking at this, a righteous, you know, a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and toward evil, he's going to die. And the Israelites accuse the Lord's way isn't fair. But I want us to understand that God is sovereign and just. God, it, when we understand who God is, the very nature and character of God, he cannot be anything but just. Every decision he makes is right. You know, the way of the Lord isn't fair. Many times in our human reasoning, we look at all of that and, and, and we want to assume that this isn't fair. It's just not fair. Well, I believe that all of life is fair. It's just not equal. You see, what you and I deserve is death and hell, separation eternally from God. And because of the grace and mercy in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, we don't have to experience it. It's not God's ways that are unfair. He says it's our ways. People will ask, how in the world can God send someone from an unreached people group on the other side of the world to hell because, having never heard the, the name of Jesus? God has laid out his conditions. They live among an unreached people group because that unreached people group has perverted the true gospel and live in rebellion and idolatry. You know, you think back through the Old Testament and, and uh, the, the, the people left the Tower of Babel, every one of them, you know, God came down and confused their languages. He scattered them over the face of the earth. But every one of them left there with the knowledge of the one true God. And so over time, as they separated and scattered over the face of the earth, they began to pervert the true gospel. It's not God that's unfair and unjust, but it's the rebellion and the disobedience of mankind whether it be those unreached people groups that perverted the gospel over the years or whether it be you and me as believers and followers who have failed to make disciples and share the gospel right here in our own nation and around the world. If every believer since the time of the New Testament days had done the task that Jesus left us to do, there wouldn't be unreached people groups around the world today. It's not God that's not unfair, it's you and me. Enough on that one. All right. God is sovereign and he is just. Now, as we conclude, there are a couple of things I want you to see. God delights in the repentance of the wicked because it allows him to forgive and to restore. Ezekiel 18.32 says, For I take no pleasure in anyone's death, 
This is the declaration of the Lord God, so repent and live. God doesn't want to bring judgment. He's not running around looking for someone that he can condemn. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. God rejoices when a man turns from his wicked ways in brokenness and repentance. Because it allows him to truly express his love and his restoration. So God delights in our repentance. And if we think about this whole passage today, the overarching message of the text is to repent and turn from all your transgressions lest it lead to your ruin. <clears throat> you know, we can get caught up and false doctrine, false beliefs, false religion, whatever. <clears throat> <There's, clears throat> there may be some here today who have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Recognize that the way of, that which you're, you're headed is, is not the way that leads to life. And so today, you're going to be faced with a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, continue to walk in, in rebellion. It'll be your choice, and it will be you that deals with the consequences of it, whatever it might look like. There are those of us here who have named the name of Jesus, but we're struggling with sin in our life. We've become discouraged, disappointed. We've begun to blame others for our circumstances and the situation of life, and we begin to believe lies, and Satan deceives. We find ourselves in a season of sin. We need to walk away from it through repentance. And God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe your believer is walking in righteousness. And just as Ezekiel faithfully warned the Israelites of the judgment that was to come and of the ultimate restoration and glory, we need to be warning those around us. We need to be sharing the gospel and making decisions that everyone has an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to it in a way that they can. <clears throat>